Okay, my dear friends, I'm going to try to, I'm going to keep it short because there's a, as the rabbi said, there's a lineup. So now like this. In war, just as a general introduction, people don't realize this. We live in a very modern era, everything's on camera and so on. War is a very bloody business, very ugly, grotesque, disgusting. That's the nature of war. Death. Death is very, very uh, disheartening. Um, And therefore, it's very important to understand the morality of war, the underlying principles of war. Um, And it's very important also to realize, as the Rebbe pointed out many times, that just as if you would walk into a surgery and you don't understand what's happening, if you're a savage from the jungle... And you walk in and you see people with knives and with scalpels and, and cutting people open and you'd be disgusted and you would have no other conclusion other than you're dealing with mass murderers who just chop people open and chop off limbs and organs. And clearly you're just a barbarian who doesn't understand how the world works. There's a similar notion uh, regarding war that someone thinks they're being so kind and so nice and they come into a war and it's so ugly and please everyone stop fighting when reality sometimes cannot exist without war and for continued existence and the only way to have peace is to have victory on one side of the equation and the notion of stopping a middle is like stopping a surgery in middle what happens when you stop surgery in middle the person just you have to do it all over again you're just going to cause more pain and more suffering Finish off the surgery. If someone can't handle the sight of blood, get out of the hospital. And then when the surgery is over, the person will be able to be rehabilitated, will be able to be healed, and so on. You don't deal with cancer and then leave the cancer inside. If you're trying to root out cancer, you destroy the cancer. That's just a general introduction to war in general. Now what we're particularly discussing today, we discussed the different topic last time, is collateral damage slash human shields, which is a little bit the same. And we'll see in a moment why. And I have together a few sources, a few that I handed out, and, 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 and uh, two more that I'll be mentioning. And uh, we're not going to arrive at anything conclusive right now. Let me now go with you through the sources that I handed out. Each table has one. Um, the, uh, the, the first one... Very Pashat is that Shaul, the first king of Israel, is waging a war against uh, Amalek, the mitzvah to destroy Amalek. However, it's an all-out war. However, there's a nation there living among the Amalekites who are not people who we want to kill. They have nothing to do with our war. The Canis, is, uh, to be precise. The Cani, the nation of Cani. They actually come from Jethro, if you want to know the history. Leave the Amalekites. Get out. We're about to wage war. Get out. Lest, how, do you, how would you translate it? Lest I eliminate you with them. Lest, lest I am forced to kill you guys, just as a matter of fact, if you're going to be together with Amalek, there's going to be no other choice. I, and I don't want to do that. And ultimately, the Pasuk concludes, this is the book of Samuel, chapter 15, Kaini left 
He turned away and he abandoned Amalek. He got out of the battle zone. He decided to do the smart thing and get out of the way. Source number two. I'm going to read the sources, a few sources, and then we're going to draw uh, our conclusions. Second one I'm bringing from is where Hashem, the prophet, tells, the prophet is told to relate, to convey to King David that he will not build the temple in Jerusalem. He will not be the one to build the temple. Why? Very famous words. You spilled much blood. You spilled much blood and the temple is a place of peace. And therefore, you can't be the one to build the temple. It's going to have to be your son, King Solomon. You, you are not, you can't build the temple. You spilled so much blood. Now, he was not being told that he's a murderer. He's not being told he's an evil person. Just your mission, like the rabbi said, people have different missions in life. Your mission was destroying the enemies of Israel. And the temple is a little bit of a different mission. So therefore, I don't know if you could be the same one to do the mission. Says the Radak. Says the Radak. Fascinating words. He says, we're not referring, when Hashem told him that you spilled blood, he's not referring to the blood of the enemies that he, that, who are trying to kill him. There's no, uh, there's no guilt in killing someone who wants to kill you. There's no, uh, there's zero element of a, of, a, of a stain, of a moral stain. It's just, it's not a thing. The reality is, someone's trying to kill me, you're doing the biggest mitzvah in the Torah to shoot them in the head. So then, rather, what is it referring to? The bottom of the page... He says, The blood of the Goyim that he spilled, which were not not people with which he had issue, people who, who, with who he was at war. And he says, furthermore, says It's very possible and very likely that among them were people who were good people and Hasidim. Hasidim means pious people. That doesn't just mean good people. It means wonderful people. You can't find a more delicious person than this. And nevertheless, King David, King David killed them. They were killed by King David. He says King David's righteousness was not diminished. God, he, God does not punish him for their execution. Why? Because the intent of, of your actions was to destroy the wicked. That they should not be able to break into the Jewish people. And to save himself and his, and his nation. Okay, very interesting. We see upset in between some kind of in between uh, a notion. On the one hand, he says, "Damim you spilled too much blood." On the other hand, she wasn't punished for it. It was even though he's killing Sadikim and Hasidim. What it boils down to. Is the next two points, the next two sources that we said, that, 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 that I've brought. I brought two more sources. And this is what it's going to boil down to. And I'm going to say it first orally. And then maybe we'll see it inside a little bit. 
Torah allows for war. Torah doesn't just allow for war. Very often it mandates and commands for war. Simple. You cannot allow for a situation where people are not secure, people are not safe, people are living under threat. Absolutely unacceptable. To wake up and not know if your children are safe is not an acceptable situation. And otherwise, to say otherwise is an immoral argument. Now, there are many laws within the Torah of exactly how to conduct yourself in regular times in terms of life and death. Such as, the most famous rule is you should give up your life rather than kill another person. Right? What makes your blood more... Right? No, not, not someone who's trying to kill you. But if the person trying to kill you says, unless you kill miss the third party, I'm going to kill you. Ah, say that. I feel that these dinner are even a hit. You're going to see them, And there's other rules about not putting yourself into danger. It's forbidden for a Jew to put himself into a dangerous situation. By the way, in Shulchan Aruch it says, even to save someone else's life, you're not allowed to put yourself, kill yourself, just because you want to kill yourself. Your life is the priority. It's complicated. I'm not making an absolute rule. Sometimes, of course, you're allowed to. But in principle, there are different kinds of conversations and rules in Judaism surrounding the laws, these kinds of laws. However, the point I'm making is, in war, it all falls away. In war, it falls away. Why? Because the very nature of war mandates certain actions. And if you follow these principles, the regular principles, you're not going to be able to fight a war. So the Torah may as well have told you to lock the doors, turn off the lights, throw away the keys, and shut up shop. If there are certain rules which tell you by definition that you cannot win the war, that you cannot fight the war, then the Torah would never tell you it's an impossible rule, and therefore the Torah should tell you not to fight the war from the outset, off the bat. So if, obviously, so that's the third source I, I brought, I'm not going to read it inside, but the third source I saw it is the, the, Minchas, uh, the Minchas Chinuch writes that uh, Obviously, in a time, the Torah tells you to put yourself into Sakana, etc. All those laws don't apply in the context of war. Therefore what? What's a practical implication of that? If you tell me, and by the way, international law, which is not something as halacha as Torah cares about, but international law recognizes this as well, if someone uses a human shield, <laughs> if someone is engaging in battle among the civilian population, the notion that that provides them with protection is a recipe that you should never be able to win the war, obviously. Why doesn't everyone do, just do that now? Clearly you can't fight a war if, you're, if someone is able to take that into account and hide behind the civilians and civilian population, in order, that is the very tactic of war. And by the way, it happens to be by chance that Israel has superior power. 
But let's say they wouldn't. Let's say it would be an equal footing. So if someone has an automatic advantage, you have to fight with your hands tied behind your back. Then I get to do what I want. And that's how we're going to fight. That's not a war. That means, from the natural state of affairs, you're going to lose the war. How are you going to win? If the other team has an advantage that you don't have, that's how, that's how a, the war, a war goes. If one side has an advantage, they win. No side is able to have an advantage. There's no advantage. You can't have an advantage. And therefore, even if they're holding Jewish human shields, if that's supposed to be some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card, that you have a way of ending the war, all you have to do is grab a Jew, and now we can't fight a war anymore, that goes against the very core and essence of all war, of the very permission of the Torah, the granting of permission of the Torah to fight a war. What kind of war is this? Where you get to pretend like you have some kind of immunity. Now, in a moment I'm going to tell you a source for this and against this, what I just said about human shields. However, the, last, the second point I wanted to make, which is the last source that I handed out, it's small letters, so if you have, if you're in, if your eyesight... This is great, you're not going to be able to read it, but it's on Pasuk Yud Gimel, uh, the Guraye. The Guraye is the Maharal of Prague, one of the greatest rabbis in Jewish history from 500 years ago. And he's talking about the war against Shechem, where we know they annihilated all the males of the city, uh, Shimon and Levi, when their sister was kidnapped and raped by the leader of the city. And there's a debate between Maimonides and Nachmanides, what exact, why were they deserving of being destroyed, the city? Is it because they didn't judge their leader? Is it because, in general, they were uh, tremendous uh, sinners and evildoers? The Gurarye, the Maharal, has a tivuch. He has a way of bringing both opinions together, meaning there's no question from the outset why this is permitted. And he explains very, uh, and this is a, a little bit of a, uh, you could almost say a controversial notion. This is a different than what I was just discussing. He he. I'll tell you out from outside, and then I'll read a little bit inside. He is essentially making the claim that in the context of war, you view nations as individuals. In other words, every, every person in the nation is an organ of a body. If you're part of the nation, you're part of the body. And we cannot have a war. He writes, All wars are like this. He says, you cannot have a war where there's this idea that I'm fighting with a part of your people, but not all of your people. I'm fighting the nation. You are the enemy does not mean Hamas is the enemy. It means Gaza is the enemy. Now, we'll see in a moment. The Mepharshim say that even that doesn't mean that you go out of your way to try to kill a civilian. That's not the point, That's not the point of the matter. In fact, by Shechem, they didn't kill the women and children, people who they considered uninvolved. He's, it's, it's a different Nakuda, it's a different point. What's his point? In the end of the day, and by the way, you saw this very much, if anyone who studied the war of independence, the, the Israelis, there were many villages, Arab villages along the key points of the road where the Israelis threw, had to kick out all the Arabs from the villages. And if you study the war, you'll see, because the moment there's an Arab village there, it means that the Arabs have a safe place to be. 
Right? They go, they can shoot from there, they get food, they get refuge, they get protection. They have their people, it's my people. They had to, all these key ways which were relevant for the victory of the war, they had to expel, kick them all out. No other, no other way. And it's the nature of the beast. Who are you fighting? They're all the enemy. They're not on your team, they're on the other team. They provide refuge for the enemy. They provide protection to the enemy. Therefore, he says, <coughs> excuse me. So he says, and I'm quoting the top right of the of column, that being that they were two different nations, that the moment you messed with my people, we, we like almost make a pact with each other, that we're all one. And the moment you mess with one of us, it's almost, it sounds like a, like, uh, like the gangs, you know, you, you take one of us, then we have to respond, right? We're there for each other. He said, Lahavdal, but he says, the moment they did something against the Jewish people, and even if it was done by part of your people, but you people are on his team, you harbor him, he's from your nation, and you, and you, and you don't judge him, in other words, he's not referring to the question of were they able to judge their prince. It's that, it's that you ultimately side on the other side. The Torah completely allows you to avenge yourself against the nation as an act of war. The real line is, says this is the very definition of war. That's what he writes. You're breaking the back of the enemy. You're breaking their will to fight. You're not breaking the, 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 it's not just the edge of the sword. You're fighting the people. So this is already even more broad in terms of the view of the morale of what it means civilians in a war. What it means essentially is don't take the civilians into account, not just because how am I supposed to fight the war, but also because if you're a civilian and in any which way you're supporting the enemy, and you are in an area, especially if you're serving as a human shield, then that's supposed to somehow limit my activities. And my soldiers are supposed to die for the sake of your civilians. Because what is ultimately being said, you should endanger the soldiers, and we see the level, the price that's being paid. Every day, another five, six, seven soldiers. We're holding at 165 now. For who? For the enemy. For the enemy. And why is the enemy staying? Do you think for a moment that the kibbutzim lets the Gaza, do you think if they got a 10-minute warning that the terrorists are coming, you don't think they would all be gone, 99% of them? Why is it that the Gazans feel so secure that Israel gave them weeks to leave what they told them was going to be a battle zone? And they're all still sitting there. There's still 200,000 Arabs in the north Gaza walking around twiddling their thumbs. What are you doing there? You're there to help and assist the enemy, by definition. Because you make it harder. How am I supposed to fight the enemy? You're there. By definition, the Maral says you are the enemy. There's no such thing as an innocent civilian in northern Gaza at this point. What are you doing there? Israel gave you every opportunity. There's no reason you should be here right now. And if you're here, completely on yourself, and so on. The last point I want to make, with your permission, two, two more minutes, is 
is a, a, a argument for the human shield and against the human shield. An argument to say why a human shield does not become a legitimate target, in other words, to say that, look, tough luck, you're, uh, you're stopping my war efforts, is because it says that when Yaakov was going against Esav, it says he was pained. He was afraid and he was pained. He was, and Rashi brings from the Talmud, he was afraid that he'll get killed, him and his people, and he was pained that he'll have to kill others. Why is he pained that he'll have to kill others? So the Elio Mizrahi, one of the main commentaries of Rashi, also from 500 years ago, 550 years ago, he asked this question. He says, what's the problem with killing people who are trying to kill you? We, we're, why should he feel any anguish, any pain? And he explains that the reason he was, uh, he was afraid was that he'll have to kill the others who are with him. That maybe there are people there who are there by force. Asa forced them to come with him. And therefore they're not... He's an ish alim, he's a strong man, and he, and he brought them with. But then he says that wouldn't be a good explanation. He goes on, because even if someone forces you, no one should be able to force you to kill somebody else. You should rather die than kill other people. Someone forced you to kill, to fight Yaakov? Then it's on them. So there are those who want to imply from this discussion of Rabbi Mizrahi that what would be the case if they weren't killing him, they were just a human shield against their will. Let's say someone's a human shield against their will. Perhaps this source would indicate that they're innocent and you, and you shouldn't be killing them. I hear you. Okay, my, my father says it's, been, it's not a source in any which way. All it means is that he'll feel bad about it. It doesn't mean that he won't do it. Okay, I hear you. The other source I wanted to bring is, and this I never heard before, and I'm going to conclude with this, is that we know that King Shaul killed himself before being captured by the enemy. They lost the war, and the king committed suicide. Shaul committed suicide. The question is, why did he commit suicide? So on the one hand, you can say two, two things. First, you can say, not based on the laws of the Torah, it's the laws of a kingship, which override the laws of the Torah, which is that for the war effort, it would not be good for him to be captured and paraded by the enemy. The king of Israel. The executive decision, the right thing to do now for the war effort, to win the war once again, a war is a war. What does it take to fight a war? It's not everything going to follow the regular principles of the Torah. It's going to be bad for the war effort to take me hostage, therefore I should die. He killed himself. The law of the king. He was the king, he killed himself. Another argument, however, Canis also killed himself. Could be also, he was the prince, he was the Abbezdin. Another argument, though, and I think the Yamsha Shlema says this. I haven't found it yet, but it's, I saw the quote in the name of the Yamsha Shlema. Unbelievable. Is that Shaul considered himself a roidif. That he was a roidif. A roidif is a category in Halakha where I'm chasing someone to kill them. He's a roidif against the Jewish people. Why? Because he knew that the Jewish people would expend thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lives to try to save him. They're king. And he knew that it would be in vain and it's not the best war strategy, and therefore his continued living would be a category of roidif where he's endangering the rest of the Jewish people. So he killed himself, he's killing the, the, the source of danger to the rest of the Jewish people. So if he did roidif, he committed suicide. So based on this, one, this is where people want to bring a reverse argument, that a human shield 
is not only just a consequence, he now could perhaps attain the status of a reybeif, that he is actually pursuing me, he's a source of danger for me, and it's possible, therefore, that that would be allowed to kill a human shield from that perspective. This is just food for thought, and we'll stop here.